Thank you for coming back tonight, and thank you to many of you for participating in our morning worship service. I certainly appreciated hearing your testimonies and your giving praise and thanks to God for how he has worked in your life. Um, I guess we're still distributing. Uh, anybody in need of a handout, would you raise your hand so I know where we're at here? Okay, tonight, this title is Little Things Matter a Great Deal. We're back to looking at the life of Paul. And uh, I have his introduction. Little things are the grounds of, our basis of the big things. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. As we think of the life of Paul, certainly there have been some uh, tremendous transformations that take place in Paul's life. Uh, moving from a place of being a persecutor of the church now to being an apostle of the church, uh, a teacher of the church, uh, a leader in the church. Certainly his approach was far different. In uh, the book of 2 Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy, uh, he says to Timothy that uh, a teacher must be patient, must be long-suffering, uh, must be gentle unto all men. Uh, certainly that wasn't Paul's approach prior to his conversion. And as we look at the extremes of Paul's life, my question tonight is, what was the motivating factor that moved him from point A to point B when point A and point B were totally opposite of each other. Uh, what was the process of his heart and mind that changed him to the place that ultimately he became this great spiritual leader as opposed to the great persecutor of the church? It didn't happen overnight, and it has more to do with his heart than it does with the outward manifestations. And so tonight I'm concerned about the heart and want to look at what was a primary change in Paul's motivation. So I have here, there was a tremendous transformation that took place in Paul after his conversion. What was the essence of that transformation or reason for it? We obviously would talk about the grace of God, but I, I want to pinpoint how God's grace was active in his heart. And the answer is Paul was transformed by a desire to no longer seek man's approval but rather to seek God's approval. Sounds like a small thing, but it's huge. And I want to unpack that for you tonight. First, substantiate that that's true, and then talk about the significance of that. But it is a foundational shift in Paul's thinking and heart that brought about this outward transformation. He moved from a place of wanting to please men to finally moving to a place where he wanted to please God. So key verse tonight is Galatians 1.10. For now I am seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the theme is the importance of seeking God's approval as opposed to seeking man's approval. First, Paul's life prior to his conversion could be characterized as seeking man's approval. Galatians 
For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Then he says this, if I were still trying to please man, that is an important little word. If I were still trying to please man, he's talking about a transformation that takes place. He said, ask the question, am I seeking now the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man or am I trying to please God? And in the midst of that, he says, if I were still trying to please man. So he is acknowledging that prior to his conversion, that's what his life was about. That was his primary interest and concern, to gain people's approval. After his conversion, his primary concern was gaining God's approval. Now let's unpack that. A. It's important to understand his previous religiosity in this light. That's what was motivating Paul in all that he did, seeking man's approval. It explains his satisfaction with himself and his dissatisfaction with others. How Paul could look at himself and consider himself blameless. Find no fault in himself, but quite ready to find fault in others. And then after his conversion, Paul says, I am of all men the chief of sinners. What a transformation. Two, Paul, after his conversion, was no longer trying to seek man's approval. First Thessalonians 2, 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, I'm not trying to please you or to please anyone. I'm just trying to please God. I will come back to this section in Thessalonians at the end of the message to again further delineate the practical ways in which that manifested itself in Paul's ministry. But tonight, we're, but at this point, I'm just setting that basic difference of not wanting to please men, but, excuse me, uh, yes, not wanting to please men, but pleasing God. Three, seeking man's approval can be a motivation for wrongdoing. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. So here's talking about Herod. And Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. But it states, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, when it saw that, that he got a favorable response to this act of killing James, when he saw that it endeared himself to the Jewish population, uh, they were opposed to the rule of Rome, but when he took on the church, when the Jews looked favorably upon it, that motivated him then to arrest Peter. And his intent was to kill Peter as well. After all, if this pleased the Jews, how much more would it please the Jewish people if he took Peter and arrested him and killed him as well? So it was a motivation for wrongdoing. They were being spurred on. It's kind of like the class clown. 
you know, and everybody else is spurring him on, uh, showing favor, showing support, laughing at what he is doing, and it just makes them want to act up and do more bad things so that people will look up to him, laugh at them, uh, view them as important or significant. It's, under, it's important to understand that Paul was motivated by this desire to please men even in his own persecution of the church. That in persecuting the church, it was uh, ingratiating him to the Jewish leaders. That the Sanhedrin was in approval of what Paul was doing. I looked at weeks past. You kind of have to put all these together. I'm slowly building on this theme. But if we look at times past, uh, we noted that uh, Paul, well, then Saul, had received letters from the Jewish leaders to persecute the church in, in uh, Damascus. And he said that he was advancing in Judaism far beyond those of his own age. He was working his way up the ladder. And one of the things that was causing him to work his way up the ladder in Jewish circles was his attitude towards the church. The Jewish leaders were against the church. And so when Paul started persecuting the church, they gave him more authority, they gave him more responsibility, they gave him more duty, and it just egged him on. It was a primary factor in Paul's attitude and labors against the church. Number four, trying to please people often creates conflicts in seeking to please God. We know the verse that says you cannot serve God and, ma uh, and mammon. Well, we, we find out in Galatians, you can't serve God and men. <laughs> you can't please God and men at the same time. And now we look at a rather innocuous example. We look at a situation that seems harmless in and of itself, but it's very illustrative. Number four, trying to please people often creates conflicts and seeking to please God. The example is provided regarding marriage. The single person is free to serve or please the Lord as he deems fit and is not encumbered by the desires of a wife, 1 Corinthians 7.32. I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. This verse presupposes that a single man is wholeheartedly seeking to please God. One is not to understand from this verse that all single men are wholeheartedly seeking to follow the Lord. Now, this is not an absolute statement. Single people are single in their devotion to God. But rather... The person who is devoted to God and is single is in a unique situation to fulfill those desires to be singly devoted to God. B, the married person is encumbered with the conflict of pleasing God and also pleasing his wife. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. What is encumbering him is described as worldly things. One is not to understand that this verse, that marriage is in and of itself worldly. Marriage is ordained by God. 
The presupposition of this verse is that the wife that the husband is married to does not have the same desire to please God in all things that her husband has. It is his wife's desires that run contrary to God's desires that create the conflict. Verse 34. And his interests are divided. So it's talking about a situation in which this devoted individual marries. But now is in a state of conflict because they're trying to please God and they're trying to please their spouse. Likewise, the same conflict exists in a woman married to a man. So this is not a male chauvinist passage. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. E. The scriptures warn about being bound to unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Number one. However, our concern should go even beyond simply marrying a Christian. Number two. It is essential that we find a mate who has the same desire to please God that we do. So that we can back up for a moment. The scriptures talks about being unequally yoked. Because a believer and an unbeliever have two very different value bases. What they want in life are diametrically opposed. One is concerned about earthly things. One is concerned about heavenly things. One is concerned about pleasing God. The other one could care less about pleasing God. So it says don't be unequally yoked together. But I'm telling you that beyond that basic premise that we should all readily acknowledge as being valuable and should follow, we should also be concerned that when we marry an individual, that we are marrying someone who has the same level of commitment or devotion to Jesus Christ as we do, or we are going to find ourselves in a conflicted relationship where we are pitted against trying to please our spouse and trying to please God. Living our life the way our spouse wants it to be lived and living our life as we think God would want us to live. For example, okay, some areas of conflict that can arise, even among Christians. You could have a couple that both of them know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, but one is much more highly committed than the other. It could readily come to pass that tithing would become an issue. Do we really want to give 10% of our income to the Lord? The person who's highly committed to the Lord says, sure we do. Sure we do. The one who's not very highly committed says, you know, we got so many bills already. <laughs> there, are, there are so many things that we ought to be doing around here. Uh, so many things that already uh, we are not meeting our obligations in, in the way that we should. Um, I don't think it's all that important that we, we tithe. Service. How much time are you going to give to the Lord's work? How often are you going to be away from home? What kind of 
commitments is that going to require in terms of time, in terms of energy, in terms of money, in terms of, of resources? Okay? Uh, rearing your children, discipline. Uh, how important is it for our family to be in church? If mom and dad don't agree on that, if they have different standards, if one thinks being here on a regular basis is really helpful and beneficial to the spiritual life of the church, uh, spiritual life of the children, and think you know it's really important that they're, they're here and involved, and the spouse doesn't think it's all that important, doesn't really think that that's an important element of their spiritual growth or development, and they might be better served by being involved in social activities or events or whatever the case may be, if they're not in agreement, they're going to find themselves in a conflicted state of affairs. And the question is, do I please God or do I please my spouse? Do I do what I think I should do before God or do I go along with what my spouse thinks? So this aspect of, of pleasing men or pleasing God comes down into some very practical and relevant situations. So in trying to find people that are equally committed as we are and understand that commitment in the same way, it frees us from many difficult choices. Okay? If both people think that tithing is what should be done, a lot less argument over budgeting. If they're agreed on faithfully attending worship services, a lot less argument over extracurricular activities, involvements, and all kinds of things. If you're on the same page, you don't have the conflict. If you're not on the same page, you're going to have conflicts all over the place. Five, seeking man's approval can be a strong deterrent from doing the will of God. In this instance, we find individuals that believed in Jesus. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So here is the scripture telling us that there are Jewish people in authority, and authority in the synagogues, Pharisees. And they came to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. However, they were unwilling to publicly identify with Jesus. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they had a level of commitment to Jesus. But they had a greater commitment to pleasing the Pharisaical leaders. If they had to choose which they were going to displease, they were going to displease the Pharisaical leaders rather than the to uh, displease Jesus, who they believed in. Their concern was that they would lose their social contacts. Notice verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him that for fear of the Jews they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. Their concern was if they would follow through on their commitment to God and their belief in Jesus, it might create problems because they're going to be put out of the synagogue. 
And they aren't concerned about being put out of the synagogue about their spiritual condition because they're believing in Jesus. They're not there for the spiritual food. They're there because of its social approval and status. It is like today, the person who goes to a church that says, you know, they really don't preach the gospel, but my family has gone there for generations. All my friends are there. I grew up in this church. And I know that it really doesn't preach the gospel, and I know I'm not really being fed, but you can't really expect me to leave my family and friends to go to a church that preaches the gospel, can you? And so out of a desire to please family, out of a desire to please their friends, and out of a desire to please themselves, because pleasing their family and friends is so important to them, they are willing to fudge on their commitment to Jesus Christ and the word and the gospel. It can happen. In fact, it happens all too often. Six. Seeking man's approval taints all the good that we do. Service should be rendered in single-mindedness to God. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would for Christ. The word for sincere is the word for pure. And when we're talking about pure, we're, we're, we mean that which is not mixed. Okay? When you... <clears throat> a purebred is a dog that has an ancestry on both sides of being the same kind of dog. You know, a poodle, and it has a poodle on both sides. Well, that's a purebred. To have pure motives is to have unmixed motives. You can't mix together the motive of both trying to please God and trying to please men and have a sincere heart. Those are mixed motives. You can't accomplish both. So it says, do your work, not trying to please men, but trying to please God. B, when we seek to please men, we are insincere to our devotion to Christ. That is what, that our motivations are not pure, but are mixed, doing the will of God from the heart. It is in that sense we cannot, one and the same time, be motivated both out of desire to please men and to please God. So Paul says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Uh, can't do it. I uh, can't be what God wants me to be. These are subtle but very important issues. How often it is that we try to do both. That we do try to please God and we try to please men. But you see, it will quick, quickly raise its ugly head when we really are concerned about pleasing men. It <clears throat> raises its ugly head in two opposite ways. First, 
causing us to be addicted to praise. Finding it necessary when we are doing God's work to be thanked, to be appreciated, to have someone say, wow, you're the best. You're the greatest. You're wonderful. Thank you for being alive. That person is easily manipulated. That person easily finds themselves in a situation when they no longer get that praise that they hunger it. And they're willing to make adjustments to receive it. The opposite, you see, the opposite danger is that when you don't receive it, you become depressed. You become overwhelmed. You are incredibly discouraged by the fact that nobody seems to appreciate what I'm doing. Nobody is interested in the things that I'm interested in. Nobody thanks me for doing this hard work and this service. Nobody says, you're the greatest person on earth. Now, why was this so important for Paul? Well, we're in 2 Timothy, and Paul's finding himself in prison for preaching the gospel. Nobody's thanking him. Paul says, everybody's forsaken me. They've all left. No one is here. If Paul is still a person who needs the approval and the blessing of men, he's going to cave. When everybody forsakes him, he's done. What motivation is there then to serve the Lord? We've looked at three motivations in the text. Last week it was so that the elect would be saved. Next week it's a new motivation. There are four motivations in 2 Timothy, and none of them are about pleasing men. And if they were, he would have quit. He would have quit. He would have given up. It had been a done deal. So let's look at the implications for behaviors that arise out of seeking to please God as opposed to seeking men. Because Paul is seeking to please God and not men, he is not discouraged when people are displeased in him. 1 Thessalonians 2.2 But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul says here, you know we've suffered. We suffered shamefully. So now he's talking about a specific kind of suffering. A suffering that is unique. There is physical suffering that Paul endured. There is spiritual suffering that Paul endured. And now he's talking about emotional suffering. A suffering that he describes as being treated shamefully. Shamefully. People were despairing him. People were shaming him. People were saying unpleasant things about him. And he describes at the end of the verse that he's declaring the gospel in the midst of much conflict, which means that the people were upset. 
<clears throat> now people are persecuting him. They don't want to hear what he has to say. In fact, they are threatening Paul with imprisonment. It's the exact opposite of somebody saying, oh, you're the greatest. They're saying, you're the worst. And you ought to be in prison. And Paul says, I had boldness in God to preach to you. This boldness comes out of his desire to please God and not please men. It didn't matter to him. When I say it didn't matter, it isn't as though it was a cakewalk. But in his desire to please God, he surrendered all of those previous desires to please men. B, because Paul is seeking to please God and not men, he has no mixed motives in doing the work of God. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. So Paul says it kept me from two things. Error. I didn't teach falsehood. I didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. I didn't change the gospel. Last week, we saw that Peter caved and was willing to separate from the Gentiles over circumcision. Paul took him on and said, that's wrong. Paul didn't change what he taught by his audience. There are situations in which if we're going to preach and teach the Word of God accurately, we're going to encourage people's disfavor. There are certain doctrines that people don't like. Election is one of them. Election is one of them. And if we're sitting there saying, you know, somebody's going to be upset with me if I teach the doctrine of election, I better not bring it up. It's going to change what the Word of God says. We can't look out in, in our work situations of people we're talking to and alter what the Word of God says in order to gain their approval or their appreciation. So it kept them from error and impurity. And impurity. Uh, which speaks to issues of motivation and conduct, which I will explain in greater detail in a moment. C, because Paul is seeking to please men, he conducts himself in a manner in which God will approve. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he's saying uh, God is going to examine not only what he says, but Paul's heart. He's going to examine his motives. And Paul is concerned what God thinks when God examines his heart. Not what man thinks when they look at his outward appearance. D, because Paul is seeking to please God and not men, he refrains from telling people what they want to hear. For we ne never came with words of flattery, as you know. Okay. We didn't butter you up. We just didn't say nice things so you will like us. We didn't tell you how wonderful you are. We didn't tell you how great you are. We talked about sin. 
We talked about rebellion. We talked about hard things. We didn't flatter. We didn't flatter. The person who is absorbed with wanting people's approval is a person who flatters. In order that people will flatter them in return. Speak well of them and praise them so that that person in turn will like them and please them and flatter them. It is a tremendous danger to want to be liked, to fit in. That is so important in our culture. And the reason it's so important is it stands in direct contrast to the Christian truth. E, because Paul is seeking to please God and not man, he does not seek to be praised or elevated by them. Verse 6, nor do we seek glory from people. Paul says, I wasn't motivated out of a desire to be exalted. People were not putting him on a pedestal. He was going to go to prison. If we are really, really caught up in wanting people to exalt us, that you know, we want accolades, we want praise, we want tokens of appreciation. If we're out for trophies, if we're, we're out for testimonials, if we're out for plaques, if we're out for somebody to pat us on the back, we're not going to last long in doing the will of God. Because sometimes in doing the will of God, instead of getting a pat on the back, you get a kick in the butt. It upsets people. They're on a totally different plane and, and place. And they don't particularly appreciate your approach or what you stand for. F. Because Paul is seeking to please God and not man, Paul does not seek to prove himself to be right. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. We were gentle. Notice Titus 2.9, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything there would be well-pleasing, not argumentative. So many times people argue over doctrine. But they're arguing not so much because of the truth of God's word. They're arguing because they want to gain supremacy. It's not about truth. It's, not, it's about their authority. That people feel themselves challenged when someone disagrees with them. And they feel slighted. And so many arguments are not about truth. They're about I'm right, and you're wrong, and I'll prove it to you. And it's a shouting match. It's an intellectual fight to try to bring the other person into submission, to get them to say, spiritual uncle, okay, I give up, you're right, that's the truth, let me alone. Paul says, be gentle. Be kind, be patient. And Paul could be because it wasn't about himself. 
He wasn't interested in proving himself right. He wasn't interested that people walk away and say, wow, did he have an intellect? He is so smart. He is so gifted. It wasn't about him. It was about the work of God. And so he could be gentle. He could be patient. He could take it. Because he wasn't concerned about whether people thought he was brilliant. Or whether people thought he was right. He was just dutifully going on. Presenting the word of God. Next verse in 2 Timothy says that God might grant them repentance. That God might do a work in their heart. Just leaving it in God's hands. And saying, Lord, you know what's going on here. You're aware of what's taking place. And he just prays for people. And waits for the Spirit of God to work. G. Paul did not take his rejection personally. When the gospel was being rejected, Paul agonized and grieved that God was being rejected. Not him. Not him. Now it's true at the same time they were rejecting the gospel, they were rejecting him. They were saying some nasty things about him and they were treating him pretty raunchily. But that's not what Paul focused on. Because he had moved in a place where he was so much more concerned about what God thought and about pleasing God that he left behind this desire of Pleasing men and worrying about what they think. Worrying about whether they're upset. Worried about... Now, obviously, you need a balance in these things. And the scripture teaches us we need to be all things to all men. It teaches us that we need to be concerned about what people think. But tonight, the emphasis is, but not in this selfish, self-centered, motivated way. That we get our kicks... out of people's approval. But we're able to soldier on dutifully and joyfully because we can look at ourselves in a mirror and say, before God, I think I'm doing what's right. Before God, I, I honestly believe that what I'm teaching is true. Before God, the way in which I'm living my life, I, I really think is the way that God would want me to live. Whether anybody thanks me or praises me or rewards me. Because I know God will reward me. I know God will say, well done, now good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Who would you rather please? What is the greater joy if someone comes up to you and says, well done? Or if Jesus says to you, well done? It's a primary, significant, 
change in Saul to Paul that explains why Saul becomes a Paul. Why he did endure. Why he became this spiritual giant. Because he was still not, because no longer was he still trying to please men. But now he's trying to please God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the example and life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Lord, it is an easy thing to become uh, overwhelmed with wanting to hear people's approval, to hear their praise, to be patted on the back, to be accepted. And Lord, it can be discouraging if no one thanks us, if no one praises us, if no one seems to understand the hard work or the effort that we put forth. But oh God, I pray that you would deliver us from the bondage of praise so that we cannot become manipulated, so that we cannot become the puppet of others using that praise and that adoration to move us from our desired course. And Lord, so that we would be delivered from despondency and discouragement. That when no one is patting us on the back and no one is praising us, Lord, give us a sense that we are doing your will. We are fulfilling your purpose. And Lord, give us the spirit that even a Paul and a Silas who are sitting in a jail cell can sing praise to you. Lord, give us a heart that can soar and give you praise when there is none for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Your art is missed. Choir.